Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to Java Chats with Dr. Sandy, your personal brew of life with a teaspoon of medicine. Real women, real life, real chats. Welcome back, everyone. And I think today I'm going to stop at one of my favorite establishments and get myself a caramel macchiato. It has been an interesting weekend and it's been uh, quite a day. (laughs) So, but you know what? I don't have one of those every day, but once in a while it's a treat. So, you know, I think I'm going to treat myself today. Anyway, the other day I saw an interesting pin on Pinterest that caught my eye and it read, my uterus and I are breaking up. And I thought about what that means and what better way to interpret that pin than from someone who actually broke up with her uterus. It's it's interesting how we don't go around viewing our organs uh, as, as something we need to break up with, but it's true. And today we'll be hearing a story from a different perspective, from the perspective of the survivor. And I say this because oftentimes as a doctor, I tell the story from the doctor's side, the medical side, the side wearing the, the white coat side, the stethoscope sitting behind the desk side, the side that can close the medical chart, put on her coat, drive home to her family side. But what if today we talk about a story from the other side, the patient side of the story, the real gritty, raw, uncensored side of what it feels like to be a patient, to be a protagonist of a story with an uncertain ending? Today, I have a guest who not only works in healthcare, but is also a real patient. She is a lady who's brave in sharing her story with all of us because she understands what's at stake and understands what it's like to be on the other side of the white coat. She appreciates the need of spreading awareness about what it's like to be a patient because in doing so, she's educating others. Please join me in welcoming Kate McConville. Kate has been working in an administrative support position at the Winchester Hospital for over 10 years. Kate is also a daughter, sister, mother, partner, and a cancer survivor. Kate knows firsthand what it's like to discuss a cancer diagnosis with her patients, but she also knows all too personally what it feels like to be told the three dreaded words, you have cancer. In Kate's case, it was endometrial cancer, and Kate is a survivor. Also, did you know that September is Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month and the ribbon color for endometrial cancer is peach? So this is actually very timely. Kate, Thank you for coming on today to share your story with us. Hi, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, Thank you you for coming. (laughs) (laughs) As you said, um, I have worked with many patients who have been diagnosed with cancer, and I have family members who have had cancer themselves, uh, but it was totally different when I was on the receiving end of that news. I could only imagine. I mean, what I mean, what was it like to hear those words? Were were you alone at the time? Did somebody go with you to meet with the doctor or the oncologist? I mean, tell us a little bit about that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, to give some background, I was encouraged to see my gynecologist by my partner, Julie, who is a nurse practitioner. And some of you Go may Julie! know her- <laughs> Julie, I know. Thank you, Julie. Some of you uh, may know her from the UTI episode of the podcast. Uh, anyway, um, I've had really bad menstrual cycles, um, always had really bad menstrual cycles, and they've been getting worse over time. Uh, so Julie pushed me to see my gynecologist who ran, temp- ran some tests. At first, they thought maybe it was fibroids or polyps causing my problems. Um, so I recall I was standing in the middle of a Pier 1 store just prior to the COVID shutdown um, when my gynecologist called me and told me that they suspected cancer and that I needed to have a hysterectomy. Um, at that time, I was really overwhelmed and upset, but I tried to hold it together. Um, to be honest, by the time I actually had the hysterectomy several months later, I was told that I definitely had cancer, uh, but I was relieved because I'm stage 1A. Cancer is never good. Um, But I guess I figure it's better to be a low stage if you're going to get it because it's much more manageable if it's cut early. Did you say you were in Pier 1 when somebody called you and gave you this news? Yes. I Apparently, I decided I needed, like, I heard COVID was coming and I really desperately needed some throw pillows. I don't know. I'm always in need of throw pillows, I guess. You could never have enough throw pillows. <laughs> so, so you were, so you were a peer one and you, and you hear, and you hear this. And I, I think if I were in Pier 1 and I hear this, I think I would have probably dropped the throw pillows. Like, what do you do with that? Yeah, it kind of just feels like the air, air just gets knocked out of you. Um, but yeah, so I was just like, okay. So, you know, kind of finished up, you know, and I was like, kind of like putting that emotional process like on the back burner until I cut could get to a place where I felt more comfortable, like really sitting with it and digesting it. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. It's just so unexpected. I, you, I mean, yes, you're, you're waiting for a phone call, but it's not the news that you want to hear. And, and just, uh, it's just such a tough experience just to hear the word cancer. And, and on top of this, I mean, yeah, you're like thrust into all this information and I mean, I'm not sure about, you know, the entire conversation that happened on the phone at that time, but in terms of also thinking about now treatment and surgical options. So I'm sorry you had to go through that. And, but you did mention you were, you were diagnosed with stage one endometrial cancer, correct? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, yes, that's correct. Um, so that's when cancer is located less than halfway through the myometrium. Um, the myometrium is that muscle layer of the uterus. Um, so it was localized and caught relatively early, but um, yeah, the uncertainty of it all can be overwhelming, particularly when I was trying to digest all of that information. And then I had, you know, the worry. Um, so I was in fact diagnosed with stage 1A and things could have been a lot more complicated if detected at a later stage. Um, so I think it's a hard pill to swallow when you're fairly young and you have to have a hysterectomy and then a a cancer diagnosis on top of it, really, um, it affects your mental and emotional health, even if you don't need any further treatment. Just to throw a few statistics out there so our listeners um, are aware, according to the uh, ACS, in in the United States, endometrial cancer, i.e. cancer of the uterine lining, is the most common cancer of the female reproductive organs. And in the United States in 2020, 65,620 new cases will occur, and about 12,590 cases or folks will die from cancer of the uterine body. These numbers both include endometrial cancer and uterine sarcoma, which actually accounts for about 10% of the cases. And most endometrial cancers are adenocarcinomas, more glandular-based. And typically, endometrial cancers happen at, after the age of 50, when women are menopausal. 
My understanding is that it's fairly uncommon for women to have endometrial cancer before the age of 45. How, how old were you? Yeah, I was diagnosed at age 38. Um, I also have a 14-year-old daughter. Um, so yes, this isn't as common to happen to a younger person like myself who is pre-menopausal, but it can uh, and does happen. You know, I, I, um, I'm i in an online support group and there was this young woman, she's only 25 years old. Um, oh she gosh. just passed away from endometrial oh. So I mean, yes, it's more likely to happen to women who have gone through menopause, but it can happen pretty much to anyone at any time if you were, you know, assigned female birth and you've got a uterus. I, I also talked to other women who are even younger than myself who have more advanced endometrial cancers. Um, and so, like, I, I guess in those conversations, they're often uh, told that heavy cycles and a lot of pain are normal, but they're not. Um, my pathology report came back, and I was also diagnosed with a condition called, um, it's you can either pronounce it adenomyosis or adenomyosis. Most women have heard of endometriosis. And so um, adenomyosis is kind of like that, but instead of growing outside of the uterus, the endometrial lining grows back in on itself and into the uterine muscle. So, you know, with each cycle, your lining, you're supposed to grow it, you're supposed to shed it. With endometriosis, it grows outside of the uterine body. With adenomyosis, it that lining actually turns in on itself and grows back into the muscle. So looking back, it's probably the cause of several pregnancy losses where I experienced placenta previa and placental abruption. Um, it's a difficult condition to formally diagnose until after the hysterectomy because they have to look into the muscle to really see it. Um, but my oncologist thinks that's where my cancer cell started to grow. 38, that, that is young. And you, and you also mentioned that you know of folks who are even younger and uh, have even more serious advanced cases. Um, at 38, that's certainly a shock. Do you think that in terms of the folks who are younger, um, they're more advanced because it's not diagnosed or it's not recognized? I actually do wonder that because I feel like they're often overlooked. You know, people say, oh, well, it couldn't possibly happen to you. You're only in your 20s. You're only in your early 30s. Um, and so all that heavy bleeding, um, the pain, the heavy bleeding, the uh, irregular cycles, um, I think those get overlooked as being legitimate concerns and legitimate signs of a potential cancer. You know, not everybody's going to get cancer, but it needs to at least be investigated. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and do you have a family history of endometrial cancer or, or any type of cancer? And, and what is, um, and if you do, is there is there a genetic connection between endometrial cancers and other cancers that you know of? Um, so I don't have a family history of endometrial cancer per se, but I do have a family history of prostate and colorectal cancer. Um, so there are some genetic conditions where the same mutated genes that cause endometrial cancer can also cause other types of cancers. Um, I'm actually planning on seeing a genetic counselor. Um, so my pathology was sent back to also look for something called Lynch syndrome, which is a heritable, yeah, it's a heritable cancer syndrome, um, but it was inconclusive. So I do need to go for more testing and talk to um, a genetic counselor. So going back to some of the symptoms of endometrial cancer, which my understanding is can include vaginal bleeding or discharge that's not related to uh, a woman's period, vaginal bleed uh, with menopause, uh, difficult or painful urination, pelvic pain, and, and, and other additional symptoms. What, what, what specifically were some of your symptoms that actually um, led you to see a gynecologist? 
Uh, sure. So just for a little bit more background. So I began menstruating at age 10. And and even then, even at my, my first cycle was awful. Um, I've always had heavy bleeding and extreme pain. I used to vomit during my menstrual cycles from oh. the pain. Um, I think one time I was in middle school and I, I um, fainted. I, I passed out. Oh, my gosh. Bathroom floor. Um, so it was really like my menstrual cycles have always been really extreme. Um, and I've missed a good amount of work in school because of it. Um, you know, and, and when I was younger, my mother thought I was being dramatic because she had normal cycles. Um, I spoke to my grandmother who said that some women just have it worse, but that's normal. And for many years, I just tried to deal with it. Um, my periods came very regularly, but the bleeding was always heavy. Uh, at around age 30, I began experiencing um, irregular periods and more frequent periods. So you mentioned you started at the age of 10. I I started at the age of 12 and, and I felt like I was freaking out uh, myself. So I could only imagine as a young child what that must have felt like. And then also you mentioned that in terms of having that support system there, uh, that that understanding of what's going on in your body, oftentimes as women, uh, we're sometimes our worst our worst enemy because we, we're not recognizing, uh, you know, uh, additional symptoms in girls or in women. This is why having these discussions and awareness about our monthly cycles is so important because no two women are alike. No two uteruses are alike. In terms of frequency, you said that it was uh, more than once a month. At one point, I actually had my period every day for two months. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yeah. I had to go on hormonal treatments to get back on track. Um, And I just started sort of like being scheduled for like myomectomies, DNC, hysteroscopies, for suspected fibroids and to deal with a thickened endometrial lining. Every day for two months. Yes. That's a lot of pads and a lot of tampons and a lot of bleeding. And were you anemic? Uh, yeah, actually, I've been, I've experienced iron deficiency anemia uh, off and on for many years. And uh, I do take iron, uh, make sure that I get some sort of iron supplement. Um, because yeah, that period of time was actually really rough. I mean, it was not just like, uh, a few drops, it was a heavy flow every day for two months. So the other thing for for women listening to this podcast, and and I had actually mentioned this in a previous podcast, uh, podcast number three, where we talked about the period, the importance of actually noting uh, the menstrual cycle on a calendar or on a period app monitor, which is really, really important, um, especially for young women, especially those who are entering college. It's important to take notice of the frequency, the duration. And and I point this out because, yes, we all get busy. We all think we're going to all remember the date and sometimes we don't. And so looking at our patterns of our periods, our menstrual cycle is very important because, again, it gives us that information about our bodies and it alerts us to possible changes. And then we also have information that is tracked that we can present to our gynecologist so they can um, make decisions as to what's going on and also come up with with an appropriate plan of action. Absolutely. Um, so even small changes in your cycle can alert you that something's going on. Um, it's the tracking and the pattern that will alert us that something might be off. Um, it's important to also jot down any unusual patterns and disturbances with regard to flow, moods, sleep, and pain, amongst other things. So please, please talk to your doctor, your GYN, if you observe any symptoms or change of symptoms. Um, Another thing, I had endometrial cancer, but irregular periods can occur with many other medical conditions such as thyroid disorders, birth control adjustments, PCOS, uh, pregnancy stress, and too much exercise, 
et cetera. I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned that because I don't want everybody or anyone that, that, that is listening to this to think, oh my God, my periods are irregular and I must automatically have cancer. There are many reasons to explain these changes and clarifying the information with your doctor will lessen that stress and anxiety. And, and also to be familiar with some of the risk factors is very important. According to the American Cancer Society, taking estrogen after menopause may increase the risk, as well as type 2 diabetes, menstruations at an early age, you had mentioned that you started at the age of 10, and all this is because you're exposed to more estrogen. Additionally, also starting menopause later for the same reason, because you're exposed to more estrogen, as well as uh, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and another thing, never having given birth, are many of the reasons that also can uh, be associated uh, with um, uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these risk factors are pretty well known. And in my case, I also had thyroid disease and PCOS. Uh-huh. Um, so I didn't check up uh, on my on my GYN health as often as I probably should have. Um, so yes, the added stress, the anxiety is real, but having the right information in your hands is critical, especially um, when treatment options are available and timeliness is, is important. So please get checked out if something doesn't seem right and keep your regular GYN appointments. Uh, initially, I was told about the, diff- the possible differential diagnosis, um, you know, the possible things that could be the types of testing needed, like blood work, pap smear, endometrial biopsy, ultrasounds uh, can be done as well as DNC where a sample of the uterine wall is examined, uh, and hysteroscopy, where the doctor can view what the uterus looks like with a camera and then discuss all of these findings with the GYN. So that's great that you actually walked us through the the entire process and also the different options because there, there are there are many steps involved. It's not just, oh, I'll get a hysterectomy and it's all done, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and understanding each step as it comes is important. So ask questions, get facts. Um, those things are really important. Uh, they say medical workers are the worst patients because we know too much. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I raised my <laughs> hand to that one. <laughs> uh, as hard as it was, at least I knew how to interpret the information or I knew where to find um, the answers about all of this. So I was luckier than most who don't know what each portion of the testing process is, and that can be very intimidating in and of itself. Um, I often thought about the many women, trans men, and non-binary folks who don't know which questions to ask and where to get the answers they need most. I mean, I'm sure we can all Google endometrial cancer on the internet, uh, but we must be careful with the data we read. It's not always foolproof on the web either. Um, So, oh, so another thing, I did not get a second opinion because I felt that my treatment was very straightforward. The most important thing to me was keeping my ovaries, and I was able to do that. Uh, Getting a second opinion, if possible, may be an option that can offer a different take on treatment, um, or at least can lead to reassuring the patient that the treatment they agreed to is practiced by others as well. Uh, A lot of women in the my support groups are often concerned that treatment will affect their fertility. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned a couple of things. The first one I'm going to talk about is actually going to relate to second opinions because I have I have a I have an experience with that on a personal level. Um, just to kind of you know throw it out there, years ago I was having an issue where my periods were irregular and 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 also resulted in hormonal changes. So I initially went to see a GYN who was very gung ho and very happy to go ahead and and, and go for my ovaries, no less, right? And then I went for a second opinion who did more testing and discovered that my ovaries were not to be touched. And with a trial of meds, the issue could potentially be fixed, which it was. 
So since then, I've, I've always, I'm a firm believer of second opinions, at least in terms of my care. So yes, ask the questions, uh, be reassured that the treatment you're consenting to makes sense and is acceptable to you. Patients do have more control than they think in asking questions, doing the research, uh, and connecting with the support groups of women that have gone through similar things um, is crucial. Another- with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The thing that you mentioned was about uh, the trans um, community. Um, so, you know, I'm also in one, I'm in another support group um, that focuses on um, female, you know, uh, female to male transgender folks, as well as non-binary folks. And um, one of the things I really noticed in my conversations in those groups was that, um, you know, they, they talk about gender dysphoria and, and that's, you know, that's for someone who says like me, my understanding of it is that it's just, it's that, that feeling of um, anxiety and the feeling of, you know, emotional distress when you're the way that you view um who you are as a person is different from how your body appears. So with that, a lot of like the trans men and non-binary folks that I have spoken to have expressed that their gender dysphoria, that, that um, terrible feeling that they have is exacerbated by the thought of going in for a GYN or a pelvic exam. Um, and, and sometimes there's even that worry that the clinicians that they go see will not be accepting of who they are as people. Um, and so that can also be a barrier to care for them because they're, they're, you know, they might avoid this or because it's just like, you, you know, if you're thinking like, I am, I am a man, I, you know, you don't want to think about the fact that you might have a body part that is in Congress with that, how you view yourself. Um, and it causes that dysphoria. So, um, I would genuinely hope that, you know, if this is a clinician listening, like, please be very kind, please do your best to educate yourself, be caring and considerate and, you know, don't push someone to get, you know, if you can go without getting a pelvic exam, but you still want to see your patient, please um, be, you know, be kind about that, um, be sensitive about that. And uh, I just would hope that, you know, every trans or non-binary person would still feel comfortable, uh, hopefully, going and getting their health checked out because this this can ha- this can happen to anyone. If you're assigned female at birth and you were born with a uterus, it can happen to to you. Like, so I, I would really hope that everyone is getting the care um, that they need. Thank you for pointing that out because um, doctors and healthcare professionals um, need to be cognizant of this, and and also it's important. Uh, 
for the patient too to find that um, caregiver who who is also understanding of what they might be going through. And yes, I mean you're born with a uterus, and this is an organ inside of you, and and it can present with issues. Um, thank you for actually um, talking about that. That's actually a very very important point. So you personally, you ended up with a hysterectomy, which is the removal of the uterus. How how extensive was your particular surgery? Um, you had mentioned, I think, that the ovaries remain. How, how about the fallopian tubes, the cervix? Was was that removed? Or tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah, so I had a total hysterectomy, um, and I kept my ovaries. Uh, often even people who have had a hysterectomy get confused about the terminology. Um, so a complete hysterectomy removes the uterus, cervix, and often the fallopian tubes. Um, a partial hysterectomy removes the uterus but leaves the cervix. Uh, a radical hysterectomy is like a total hysterectomy, but it removes a greater portion uh, or margin of the tissues. Like, for an example, the top of the vagina beyond just taking the cervix. Um, the removal of the ovaries is called an oophorectomy, and it may be done at the same time as a hysterectomy. So it really depends on the age of the patient, how extensive the cancer appears to be. A younger person like myself can really benefit from keeping their ovaries because the ovaries produce hormones even after menopause that protect bone and cardiovascular health. Good point. Definitely uh, definitely a good point because uh, heart disease is the number one uh, killer of women, actually. You, you also mentioned earlier that it was a stage 1A endometrial cancer, which is um, the cancer that is actually localized to the endometrium portion, the lining of the uterus, without spreading to the lymph nodes and, and other organs as well. Was a lymph node biopsy done in your case? Uh, yeah, so when I went in for my hysterectomy, they found suspicious cells. Um, my oncologist gave me the option of doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So he said that if I didn't choose to do a sentinel node biopsy during the hysterectomy, and it was later found to definitely have cancer, that I would need a second surgery to remove all of the lymph nodes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the removal of so many lymph nodes can also cause severe chronic leg swelling called lymphedema. Um, so I opted to do the sentinel node biopsy. Um, and so what that is, I guess they need the uterus to be in place to do those sentinel nodes because they inject dye. And once the, you know, the uterus is not there, they don't have that option anymore. So that's why you have to make a choice ahead of time. Um, so the, the sentinel nodes are the first lymph nodes that uh, a cancer would travel to and can be a good indication of whether or not cancer is spread. So my lymph nodes were clear and fortunately the cancer ca was caught early. I was very, I am very lucky in that regard. Um, after the surgery, I was informed that I was also considered what we say NED or NED, which means no evidence of further disease. Um, so they think they got it all, but recurrence is always a concern, uh, though it's a small, you know, percentage of people, uh, it's still always a concern. So I see my gynecologist, my, sorry, I see my oncologist every three months and we'll have scans once per year. So congratulations on the NED status. Thank you. Um, that is reassuring. And again, like you mentioned, early intervention was crucial for you because just thinking of it, if you had not attended to it, the outcome could have been so much worse. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's really the scary part. As tough as it was, I'm grateful for the early diagnosis because, the prog you know, your prognosis depends on the stage and extent of the cancer. So sitting down with my oncologist really helped me to clarify a lot of these points. And I have I have a question, not sure how exactly uh, to ask this, but um, and, and I was wondering, because the uterus is a vital organ, and yes, women can live without a uterus. It's not like, we you know, like the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, or... 
or the brain, right? <laughs> but in terms in terms of our uterus, it's it's a it's the it's an organ that allows us to bear children with our own bodies. Was there a grief process involved? A sense that I I don't have a uterus anymore. I'm young. Um, I'm still of a childbearing age. Um, and and uh, I it's 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 sort of a, I have to give something up. Sort of coming to terms with, I'm not going to be able to have uh, children. And again, I just want to put it out there that being a mother is not just uh, biologically bearing children. There's there's so many things to being a mother. Uh, I just I just was kind of wondering what your take on that is. Um, so I mean, I I am one of those people like I always wanted to be a mother. Uh, I know some folks don't. That's that's fine. But on, on the topic of motherhood, um, so I guess like for me personally. I had so many pregnancy losses. So I think my grief hit me in a more gradual way. Um, so I had come to accept that I wouldn't carry any more children uh, a while ago, uh, though I am hopeful, hopeful to be able to extract some eggs and my fiance has agreed to carry them through RVIF. A lot of women I talk to report grief to varying degrees. Many say they know it isn't logical and some are even past childbearing age, but, uh, and they're still, you know, really upset. And I think it just kind of like really hits them. It's because, you know, it's still a big change that your body goes through. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So the grief is very real. And however you feel is okay. Yeah. There's also that balance to the weighing on one, on one hand off knowing your life is potentially on the line and being told this is the treatment option recommended. And yes, you know, saying goodbye to a body part that gave you or had the potential to give you your beautiful children. Um, so I like that you mentioned before breaking up with my uterus, because um, you're right, it is a grieving process. It's a breakup, uh, though the scars are minimal. Thank God for robotic surgery. Um, it's still overwhelming at times. I was also scared that, okay, you know, I gave up my uterus, and then what? What are the guarantees? Uh, will I need to give something else up in the future? I've also, you know, felt a lot of anger, too. You know, anger is also a part of the grieving process. Um, and I've already had a few things removed, my thyroid, my uterus. So then I was like, well, what's next? And and then, you know, to top it off, the angst of worrying that my daughter might get the same type of cancer. Yes. Oh, yes. The guilt, the guilt of transmission. And then and then going back to the grief process, I, I mean, I remember when after I had my last child, I personally held on to my maternity clothes in a bag, I think for two years, because <laughs> I wasn't ready to give that up yet. So I could, I, I, yes, the, you know, the grief is real. So thank you for mentioning that. And also what you mentioned was also um, the angst of wondering uh, if you would pass something similar to your daughter, again, that guilt of transmission, which, which is uh, just to give you a little um, side note on terms of just the guilt of transmission. Um, my mother's a breast cancer survivor and she uh, did not want to get BRCA tested because she did not want to live with the guilt of knowing that she might potentially pass on breast cancer to me. So um, I had to go and get it done on my own, which I did. And luckily it was negative. But I, I yes, parents do worry about their children and they worry about their, you know, the future of the future of their children as well. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Um, and yeah, you know, the discussions between mothers and daughters are important on so many levels, you know, or mothers, you know, parents and children and their children keeping those lines of communication open just between the generations. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned breast cancer, because there may also be a connection with breast cancer and endometrial cancer. Right. Yes. And and more research definitely needs to happen in uh, 
with regards to all these type of cancers and their um, genetic connections and also their biological and mutation connections as well. In terms of treatment options, my, my understanding is that the um, uh, there is surgery, there's possible radiation treatment, chemo, hormonal target, uh, targeted therapy, and as well as clinical trials. And again, all dependent on this stage of the cancer. Now you, you had surgery, you said, how, how long did it take you to heal from the surgery? Was it painful? Uh, um, yeah. So the best way I can describe it is one step forward and two steps back. Um, it took me a while to feel like myself again. So even after the immediate pain went away after a week or two, I was tired. Um, so yeah, it hurts at first, but they give me, they gave me uh, painkillers and they've really come a long way with laparoscopic surgery in the past 10 years. Um, so I was originally on oxycodone, which I'm not really a fan of. Um, it really messes with your bowels and everything is really tender after abdominal surgery. Um, you know, sometimes after a hysterectomy, you're also starting on hormone replacement therapy. But I was told I don't qualify because, um, I one, I was able to keep my ovaries. And two, in the event that I needed it, because of menopause, I wouldn't be allowed to take it because my cancer is thought to be estrogen driven. Um, I would say it took me about 10 weeks to recover fully. So that's 10 weeks. Um, you weren't working at the time, right? Correct. Were, were there any type of exercises that were recommended to you post-surgery to strengthen your core or pelvic muscles? Uh, Kegels. You can do uh -huh. Kegels right away. Um, I'm thinking about speaking to a pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, I still take it easy with abdominal exercises. I tried a plank during week eight and I regretted everything. Um, uh. <laughs> I'm currently about 13 weeks post-op right now. Congratulations for your recovery. Congratulations for hanging in there. And um, and it's funny you should mention uh, a, a pelvic floor physical therapist because I was just in touch with one who I'm hoping to get on a podcast. So okay. yes. <laughs> so what can you tell us, uh, having gone through the experience, what, what, what can you tell us about endometrial cancer prevention? And is, if it, and is prevention even possible? Um, so some things are just not modifiable, like genetics, uh, but weight management is uh, and is an important, it's important to maintain a healthy weight. Uh, pregnancy, breastfeeding, and being physically active can help. So although, as I said, you know, I was 38, I had a child and uh, I'm physically active, but I've struggled with weight at times because of PCOS and thyroid disease. So sometimes it just happens, even if we try our best to prevent it, we can only take it one day at a time and do the best we can. Exactly. And, and not beating ourselves up. Uh, and just exactly taking it one day at a time. So, Kate, if, if you were working and or counseling a woman who may have recently been diagnosed or going through the same medical process from firsthand experience, like what, what would you tell them? What would you tell sort of your past self? Because th this actually happened to you relatively not so long ago. Um, what what advice would you give to other women who are going through a similar experience? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, I would say to a newly diagnosed person, no one deserves cancer. If you're feeling mm -hmm. guilty about it, let it go. You can only go move forward from here. Well um, said. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'd also tell them to listen closely to their doctors. I, I can't tell you how many women put pressure on themselves to do chores and childcare immediately after hysterectomy and end up having complications. So even if you're healed on the outside, you've had major surgery and there are a lot of internal stitches. Um, also, if you feel like your care team isn't listening to your concerns, find a new doctor. Get that second opinion. Uh, I would, yeah, I would tell my past self 
get the Mirena IUD. I'm trying to get one for my daughter. Uh, getting progesterone directly to the uterine lining can limit the negative effects of estrogen. So that's like big. That is fantastic information. And and Kate, you, you have been a great sport about this coming on today to share your story and not just as a healthcare professional, but as a patient. I truly appreciate your honesty and being forthcoming about your experience. And like we mentioned at the beginning of this, it's one thing wearing the white coat, but it's another thing hearing what the white coat has to say. Um, as, as a physician, this talk and this chat has been very, very inspiring and very educational. And I hope that it will empower more women to understand their bodies and the emotions that come with it. So, Kate, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Can I take one second and plug some support groups? Yes, please do. <laughs> so I just wanted to make people aware there are several wonderful um, online Facebook support groups. Um, there's a couple of endometrial cancer support groups. There's hysterectomy support groups. Um, and there's there's ones for young uh, women as well. There's also another support group for uh, FTM non-binary uh, folks who uh, choose to undergo hysterectomy. Um, and then I also just started a group um, called the New England Peaches, which is for local you know, Boston area folks who have had a hysterectomy or are concerned about their GUN concerns. Um, it It is open to anyone. Um, and uh, that, so I just I just started that one um, because it's, it's important to also sometimes have local supports and just have people like around you that, you know, can be can be you can talk to and ask for advice and whatnot. Absolutely. Having having that support system is actually crucial in going through these major uh, life changes. Um, also, since you've mentioned that, if you can, if you can send us all the links, um, we will I will I, I will post it and I will spread the word you have been terrific. You have been a great, great host. Um, but I, I actually have another question for you. OK, hey, what, what's your favorite coffee? Oh, that's, that's a tough question. Um, so honestly, I'm actually mostly a chai tea drinker. I do, like, you know, I like to try like those seasonal lattes that like Starbucks puts out. You know, I like to just like try them, but most of the time I actually drink chai tea and um, I like a, with a little oat milk. <laughs> One for chai tea. And, and, and you actually mentioned Starbucks, which actually um, the name Starbucks was, which is, I didn't even know this, but the name was actually inspired by a character from the novel Moby Dick. Before we go, I usually share some Java chat, Java bean tips and thoughts, but today I'm going to shake things up a bit. I'm going to have Kate give us the list of her five favorite songs, you know, songs that have a meaning and songs that can help us heal through the tough times. And I heard through the grapevine, Kate, that you're a singer. Uh, yeah, I am. I think that was probably Julie that told you that, which I'm going to yes. have a very <laughs> discussion with her. Uh, I will not subject y'all to that. Um, I have a lot of favorite songs. I'm a, I'm a big music buff, uh, and I like music from all different time periods. Um, but when I'm feeling down or tired, I like to listen to something cheerful and upbeat like ABBA. Um, so I, you know, Take a Chance on Me or Waterloo by ABBA. I also love Pat Benatar, you know, that song, We Belong. Yes. Um, if I'm feeling a little bit more introspective, um, Katie Lang actually recorded a bunch of songs that Jane Sibbery wrote, and they're just gorgeous. Um, and then, you know, I like something like the, you know, I, I love Stevie Wonder, uh, Sam Cooke, the song Cupid by the Cupid, uh, the Sam Cooke does, and then Cry to Me by Solomon Burke. 
Those are actually fantastic songs. Those are those are inspiring. Those are great songs. Thank you for sharing that list. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for sharing your experience. And thank you all the listeners for joining us. As always, I welcome your feedback, comments, questions, and ideas. I look forward to your emails at javachatswithdrsandy at gmail.com. And check out my website, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter with the same name. And give a like on the podcast. Well, thank you, and until next time. Thank you for choosing Java Chats with Dr. Sandy as your personal brew. Real women, real life, real chats.